This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday. Time to talk about all things municipal and top of mind is the spate of violence, apparently random violence on the TTC. And just this week, two stabbings, one resulting in life-altering injuries for a young woman, as well as a swarming by perpetrators alleged perpetrators as young as 13. And these are just the latest incidents. Now, we have authorities saying they don't know exactly what to do. They're calling for task forces. And yes, even if we do need to study this, what can be done now to deal with this? We heard the conservative leader, Pierre Poilievre, yesterday blame the bail system. Is that it? And speaking of bail, we are trying to find out if the suspects that have been arrested have been granted bail. TTC spokesperson uh, didn't know. And what about those of us who ride the TTC? I'd like to know. Are you thinking twice about that? I've got to say, yesterday, my husband took the TTC to a meeting, and uh, I I was a little nervous about that, I have to admit. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village and a former TTC chair, and John Burnside, TTC chair currently and the Toronto councillor for Don Valley East. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. So let us begin with John. Uh, as per my question, is there anything that is under consideration that can be done right now? Uh, thanks uh, for having me, Libby. Thanks for um, coming abs- on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we need more police. This is a sh- in terms of a short-term approach, which is what you're asking. I think we need more uniformed officers on the system, not only to make uh, people feel safer, but actually make things safer. And uh, I'm hoping to um, see that happen in the very near future. Well, my question is that even with that, uh, I mean, even if you get more police officers, they can't be everywhere all the time. (laughs) You know, if you have even 50, right? If if they don't happen to be in a place where this occurs, uh, how does that work? Well, no, and you look, I mean, you can't be everywhere and you can't bring the numbers down to zero. The TTC, let's, let's remember that the TTC is a reflection of what's going on in Toronto. So we're not going to get crime down to zero. Um, but that said, um, understanding where the majority of situations are occurring and I think putting police at entrances to the subways, for instance, it's a good start. I think that will dissuade people who, you know, are looking to cause trouble from entering the system in the first place and in the places where more trouble is occurring, um, that will also have a, a dampening effect as well. And, of course, John uh, is a former police officer. Karen, you're a former TTC chair. Do you uh, agree with his short-term re- remedy? I, I do agree, Libby, that uh, we do need more uh, presence of safety officers uh, within the system. And, you know, as the councillor pointed out, you're not going to, you can't have police riding every single bus and every single subway, preventing every single incident. But, uh, but you do need a police presence. And, and I would also add that, um, you know, if there's a way, not, not that you necessarily want to pay people to ride the TTC, but, but the reality is it's safety in numbers and people will feel more safe if they feel that there's more people that are there looking out for each other. And so I remember when we used to have information, um, attendants that were, you know, providing information for people when certain uh, subway platforms were under construction or bus routes um, were were being used um, because of the subway being down. 
And, you know, if we could get some ambassadors, TTC ambassadors, to be, you know, pay them to ride the subway and to be visible, to be a presence. Not that they're going to stop crime, but they've got more eyes on what's going on. And, um, and they have, a, you know, a, a, an instant way to radio for help. I think that would increase the general sense of security on the subway and, mm. and the buses and the streetcars. I mean, uh, Karen, it's interesting that you're saying be more visible because uh, the union leaders have started to advise their people saying, uh, cover up your uniform and, uh, until you get somewhere blocked off and, and safe. David Crombie, uh, I don't think this existed way back when, when you were in the chair as mayor. No, uh, it, uh, not, not certainly not in the same way, but it's always been around and some way. I think uh, I think the advice just been given by both uh, uh, the other parties were, are, are that there needs to be a sense of presence of authority in the system. People have to get used to the idea that somewhere there's a, a cop on the beat or a person or an ambassador, but it needs to have a uniform, I, I might say. there's a. I think there's a, uh, we, we learned from community policing years ago that it's the presence of the uniform uh, on, a re- on, a, on a regular or semi- regular basis that that gives the sense of presence that, that that repels people who might want to do bad things you can't be everywhere but I think they're right it's really a that's a it's a good thing to do it, it's summed up by more cops I don't know that it's only more police but it certainly needs to be people who have a uniform who, who give the place a sense of presence and I, I would think and the TTC folks can tell you that they have some idea of where there are more dangerous spots than in others Um and, and, and where usage, as Karen was pointing out, usage also repels those who might want to do. They're like more people around, uh, the, 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 more, the more chance that things won't happen as opposed to, uh, to, to do. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Ron okay. in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Okay, thanks. Hello, Libby. Go ahead. You're on the air. Thanks for taking my call. Well, I've got to look at two options um, for the problems. One is the... A lot of these kids are, I mean, the swarming the other day. I'm from Scarborough, and I'm trying to figure out what school. It must have been a high school, I'm guessing. But where are the parents in all of this, 13, 14 years old? Um, the parents have got to take some responsibility for their kids' behavior, don't you think? Uh, well, yeah, that would be good. Uh, thanks, Ron, for your call. It's a good question. I'd like to bring something up uh, that I recently noticed, and it wasn't exactly on TTC property, but it was on city property. So uh, here's what I noticed. Um, actually, it happened I, I, on a Sunday afternoon. I went uh, downtown close to the Eaton Center. There's Green Pea right near Dundas Square, uh, which apparently has a safe injection site right near there. And it was disturbing. Uh, the space, the public space, was taken over by people who were using drugs. And when uh, I got actually into the parking lot, like, uh, I don't even want to repeat, like, what was happening there. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, a lot of these people with the random violence, they look to be having issues with addiction or whatever. And uh, are is it just a matter that our public space Excuse me, public spaces like the TTC are are being taken over. John? Well, I mean, the Dundas Square thing, I, I certainly think we need to get move that uh, safe injection site away there because it's definitely a mecca for for uh, bad behavior. But that is, is much of my point, Libby, is that what's happening on the TTC is, is, you know, everything is migrating, especially in the wintertime when things are colder and people are looking for um, indoor space. Um, but what I think has also been missing on the TTC is that middle option. And, and Karen uh, alluded, um, actually mentioned it is, you know, if someone's pulled out a knife, then naturally you're going to hit the, the yellow uh, emergency bar. If someone's just sleeping on a streetcar, it's, it's you know, a very low priority. But it's that person or people who are, are escalating. And you can see it's getting worse, but a lot of people aren't comfortable to press the yellow bar. So I think it, having presence, not just police, but uh, social workers as well, and uh, some sort of ambassadors where people can uh, actually report it and something we can react quickly to that as opposed to watching it just progress and get out of hand with tragic uh, consequences. I mean, are you saying press the yellow bar if they're sleeping or if they're doing drugs? Um, is that a yes or a no? Or does that escalate? No, that, 
that's my point. They're, if they're sleeping, then you can just report it as, as you're leaving, and, and, and that's a much lower priority. But where you have much of the, the, the problems, the quality of life issues, people aren't comfortable pressing. And I don't think you need to stop a train uh, for that, but you need the TTC, whether it's police, social workers, or our ambassadors, to actually address those issues before they get out of hand. You need We need that sort of middle option, if you will. And that's why I think having more TTC staff on site, uh, police officers well, and, and, and social workers, so that things don't get out of hand to the point where there's a violent confrontation. Okay. Uh, I hate to point this out. Things are already out of hand. Karen. Yeah, they are. And I, you know, and I think, um, you know, the missing, the missing metal as, as the council referred to is, and the, and the current chair referred to is an interesting concept because, you know, the reality is that we've seen less visible presence of TTC employees in the station, um, and the new streetcars, they're secured behind their little mini cubicles, as it were. Um, and even on the buses, the new buses, they, the drivers are, are removed from the passengers. So if there is a, a situation where someone feels uncomfortable or unsure, there is not a lot of ways that they can report that um, short of stopping the train, which is extreme, and many people aren't going to do that. Um, and so, you know, how is it that we institute a neighborhood watch, as it were, within the system, where people are keeping eyes out for each other, and they've got a way to report things that don't include uh, stopping transit, but also, you know, alerting CDC staff, police, others, that, you know, that there's something occurring that's creating a feeling of unsafe, and that there could be a, a more rapid response than, than after an incident occurs. Okay, uh, the phone lines are filling up. Let's go to Helen in Mississauga. Hi, Helen. Oh, hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to call just to say, I think with the police uh, or uniforms, as you say, on, on site, I think it would be a good deterrent. And also, I think for a lot of young people, they they know that they their name doesn't go out they don't they don't have to answer much to anything they're out on bail even you know everyone and for the people that are having mental issues if the police were even there they could you know at least take them somewhere to help them um or get someone to help them but i think for the average one it's not it's not necessarily mental issues it's people just running around being bad. I grew up in Toronto and we just knew like when the police said stop, you stopped. If they asked you a question, you answered the question. Like there's there's nobody that they have to be accountable to when they're doing these things. And uh, I think yeah, sometimes it's, there's mental issues, but I think other times it's just getting up to trouble. Okay, thanks, Helen, for that. And, uh, you know, I've spoken uh, to lawyers, and this is not my opinion necessarily, who say, well, you know, um, uh, mental health issues has become a, a good kind of uh, excuse to defend people, as well as being obviously very real in, in uh, many, many cases. I, I want to go to this question of bail. I mean, obviously... It was, uh, you know, a political hot potato. The conservative leader who doesn't have many mainstream appearances was very quick to, uh, have a news conference and say, this is, this is the bail system's fault. John Burnside, do, do you agree with that? Well, certainly as a larger city issue, it's the bail system, uh, it is a contributing factor. And, but I'm always very uh, reticent to, say it's this or it's that definitively, like it's one thing. It's a combination of things. And certainly when you have people, uh, gang members running around shooting each other and getting out of jail, you know, within a few days, that's absolutely an issue. So it is part of the answer. Uh, but in terms of the random attacks on the TTC, uh, I don't think that's much of a, it's, I don't think it's the top uh, concern or the top um, approach that needs to be taken to, to right the ship. Uh, David Crombie, what do you think about uh, my observation that a lot of public spaces and perhaps public spaces in the wrong place are kind of being taken over? Well, there's always a danger of that. There, there's no doubt about it, whether that's uh, parks or whatever it might be. And we, we always, in my judgment, you always have to push back on that. The easiest thing to do is to allow things to happen in public spaces. But after a while, that corrodes it. It corrodes social interaction. 
that's what happened in New York in the 80s, 1980s and 90s. So uh, I'm, I'm always very protective. Others are not. Uh, some aren't. Uh, but I'm always very protective of public spaces being maintained for the public because if you don't, then people get really frightened. So uh, I, uh, is there more of it happening? Uh, I really, I don't have any data that tells me that or yes or no. But there's a, there is an assumption that that uh, that there's more pu- uh, more public spaces are less uh, less uh, um, satisfactory for you being around it and, and people being a little more careful. We have to really defend the public spaces because that's what allows people to social interact in a really productive way. Karen, uh, is there a problem? I mean, it seems to me that. Every time this happens, you suddenly get an onslaught of various kinds of activists and advocates, uh, and there's a certain kind of political correctness around it that uh, we're all discriminating against people who actually need our help. Uh, And I think, I mean, from what I can see, that is a, a pretty big deterrent to all kinds of politicians. Am I wrong? No, no, I don't think you're wrong at all, Libby, in that assessment. And, uh, you know, there's no, there is no question over the last several years, there's been restrictions around the language we use. There's been restrictions around how we describe certain uh, vulnerable communities. And there has been this reluctance to um, enforce order. I won't say law and order, but to, to, you know, to enforce order. And whether it's, you know, kids showing up for school or, you know, having consequences for behavior or sleeping in the public park or sheltering on the TTC system. And so, you know, to David's point, once, once you begin to loosen what I'm going to argue is um, the social contract that we have in that, you know, we, you know, we do our, our bit to be good citizens, um, you know, and in return, we expect certain levels of government to, to keep order on our behalf. And that's starting to fray, quite frankly. And when you have, when you can't use a green pea because people are using drugs or whatever they're doing in the green pea, or you can't use a subway because there's, um, you know, people smoking crack in the subway, you know, it starts to undermine your confidence that the government actually really has your interest, the general interest, the common interest. Um, and, and that's, that's very dangerous for the social fabric. You know, it's it's interesting that David brought up New York in the 70s and 80s, and uh, I hate to date myself, but I did work as a reporter in New York um, uh, in the 80s, and uh, it was uh, it was I, I it was at its worst when I was there. I mean, literally, there were streets that we couldn't go to. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a call from Barry, who mentioned the Guardian Angels. And I used to do stories with the Guardian Angels in New York. And the, the head of that, he actually just ran for mayor. He obviously didn't get in, Curtis Sliwa. But, um, you know, it was, it, it was something else. And uh, the idea of Toronto getting anywhere near that is is just it's beyond appalling. But let's go to Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Um, yes, I was thinking about that because um, a number of years back, Toronto tried that and didn't work. But um, wondering if we're to that point where we have to try it again. I wanted to pose that to your experts. Well, uh, I mean, it was kind of a grassroots thing. Nobody, nobody in any kind of authority said, okay, we're, we're funding the guardian angels. Um, uh, and they are kind of, uh, they were pretty well, um, I don't know if you'd say borderline vigilante or vigilante. I, I think, uh, what our panel has been suggesting is, is a kind of kinder, gentler version of that, John. Yeah, and as I recall, I mean, in the in the uh, the eighties uh, in New York City, there were a lot of, there were a lot of issues with the police themselves and corruption, and um, and so on and so forth. So I think the situation was quite a bit different. Uh, that said, I think we need to properly fund the police so that when you know we need more police officers in certain circumstances for whatever period of time uh, they're available and quite frankly uh, they're out in the communities you know community policing and neighborhood policing was was a was 
was all the rage about five years ago, but as, as cutbacks or a lack of funding, I should say, has sort of taken hold, those, um, those numbers, uh, the number of officers in those areas has decreased. And so they're not necessarily know, they don't necessarily know who's causing the problems or making the relationships with the community. That's all part of the solution. Well, you know, it's interesting. The police just did get a big hike in the budget. And again, those activists like the hue and cry has has not uh, stopped yet. It's the wrong thing to do. It's not going to solve anything. And again, with a lot of that community policing, uh, it was people who were saying that it uh, it that it was racist. Well, I mean, first of all, I would argue that they got a, they got an increase, but it was, uh, I believe, less than the rate of inflation. So it's still ultimately a decrease. But I, I, for people like that, I, I'll just say this: they don't let the facts get in the way of their ideology, and um, you know that's that's they're going to complain if whatever we do with uh, with the police until they're actually abolished. So if you know if people think that's a reasonable approach, well, they're entitled to their opinion. I don't agree. Uh, let's take a call from ESCO in Toronto. And ESCO, you say you made a, a complaint about bad behavior, but it went nowhere. Say it again? Uh, go ahead. You're on the air. Tell me about your complaint. Well, I don't like, I would not, I'm not aiming this at you. Um, I don't let lies get in front of the truth because the truth sets us free. Right now, we're being socially engineered to consider this the new normal. When there, when, when, Okay, I thought you were calling about a specific complaint. Um, let us move right along here. Sita and Mississauga, you think social programs will solve this problem, especially with the young people, the very young people? Yes, I do. And what we do need is have more funded community service programs for the, for the youngsters. They will stay after school and run student clubs, games, etc., and have them volunteer in hospitals and food banks. In this way, they don't, they don't have this free time to run around and get themselves in, into trouble. Well, I don't know. I, 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 Sita, I'm going to throw that back to the panel. Thank uh, you. Because don't we already have that? Who wants to take that? Don't we have those programs? We do. We do. You know, I think during the pandemic, a lot of those programs were displaced um, because the fact that kids were not in school. And so a lot of the programs related to uh, nutrition and hunger, um, they, like they basically just didn't serve breakfast in the schools anymore, so a lot of those kids didn't get breakfast. And the schools were closed, as we know, uh, in Ontario for longer than pretty much any jurisdiction in North America. So the impact of not having those programs were felt most deeply by the most vulnerable. There's no question about that. Um, the fact that the programs are starting to be re-implemented, um, they just may not have the take-up. Um, that they had before the pandemic, uh, but it, it's no substitute. Those programs by them, in and of themselves are good, and then we should have them, and we should promote them and fund them, but it, 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 it doesn't stop the issue of someone stabbing someone on the subway. And so uh, that's, that's part of, I think, what we need to get to is like, yeah, we can fund the social programs, but we need to also have a, have a presence of authority within the system, however we define that, to make sure that if someone feels unsafe, they have somewhere they can go. David Crombie, if you were advising John Tory today on uh, dealing with this problem on the TTC, but also uh, keeping those public se- uh, spaces safe, uh, it, what you were just talking about, what would you tell him to do? Well, uh, <laughs> a couple of points. I, I would like to sort of leave my participation in the program today. I, I really would like to go back and talk a second about the importance of community policing. Uh, it it was uh, brought back a couple of years ago with great fanfare, but it was starved of of, uh, of funding. And I think the pandemic uh, made it even harder. Uh, well, it did. Uh, but there is an opportunity, I think, as Karen was pointing out, that it's coming back. And I hope that that, that those pro- the, 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 the sort of sandlot programs. But but we need to, I think, combine it with. Uh, the money that's come, going to the new money that's going to the police department, I really hope it's going into community policing. I might say just very quickly, if I could, years ago, uh, we, we didn't have a difference between Sandlot expenditure on social programs and sports programs on one hand and, and the police on the other. The police were also part of the of, of those programs. They sponsored and coached and managed baseball teams 
and hockey teams and lacrosse teams. Oh, that sounds good. And yeah. they no longer do? No, they haven't done it, no. There's good reason. I'm not blaming anybody. All I'm saying is we should look at community policing and the programs of recreation and so on uh, as, as, as part of a whole. Then people learn. People learn to trust the cops right, rather than being some alien force. That's the point. John, is there any appetite for that on the current council and with uh, John Tory, the strong mayor? Well, I can't. Uh, I can't speak for the mayor, but I uh, agree with uh, David one hundred percent. That was supposed to be the foundation of the uh, police service moving forward, and then it was. It's been starved for funding um, in the last, you know, three, four, five years, which is kind of ironic because the groups that complain about the police and the relationship they have with the community starve the funding that would actually improve those relationships. So um, I have a huge appetite for that. And uh, unfortunately, I'm just one vote. And I think, unfortunately, as well, council members are so, um, uh, and their ideology is so embedded in their vote that uh, information or statistics or data that actually prove them wrong or could prove them wrong, don't that doesn't they don't matter. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the council there. There's a pretty strong left wing there, Karen. Uh, uh, and again, I think that uh, if, if this discussion came up, and again, you know, the mayor uh, can do it with without them uh, these days. But uh, I think uh, you'd get the same old hue and cry. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, I, I mean, I'm just council, of course. I'm um, been out of it for some time. But I, I really don't understand how the police can. Uh, Karen, uh, Karen, so something went wrong with your line. I can't understand you. So oh, is it better now? Can it is now? better now. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I, I just, I don't understand when the police became the enemy. And, you know, the police are there to protect and serve. And I, you know, I have full confidence in the police. And I, I think it's really quite tragic that we have a group. Okay, we we lost you. But I am looking at the clock, and basically we are out of time. Uh, People on the line, we're going to be continuing this conversation with uh, the head of the transit union after the break. So uh, I will be able to take your calls on this. In the meantime, thank you so much. That was a really, really, I think, fruitful conversation. David Crombie, Karen Stintz, and John Burnside. And we will talk again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Okay. We are taking a break. And as promised, when we come back, John Danino from uh, Transit Workers Union and his take on all of this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Uh, welcome back. And now we are continuing our discussion on violence in the transit system, this time from the point of view of the workers. And I am joined by John Danino, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union of Canada. John, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Um, John, uh, we just finished a very fulsome conversation uh, with uh, former mayors, current TTC chair, former TTC chair, and we were focused on what can be done now. And uh, the consensus was uh, more police presence and even more presence of, of others in uniform. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And, uh, you know, one of the call-outs that we did uh, just two days ago was talking about a, uh, a national task force to deal with these kinds of things, to identify some of the best practices and things we could put in place. And one of the things I articulated quite clearly was we need more visibility and vigilance on our transit systems. Uh, yeah. Um, and again, I mean, uh, uh, we probably do need a, tra- a task force, but that takes time. I mean, this is this is an immediate problem, I would say. Yeah. So look, it doesn't have to take time. And and that's what, that's what my concern is here. Uh, we've been talking about this for a number of years at the ATU about, uh, workplace or sorry, um, transit violence and operator assaults. Uh, we've been gauging this. We've seen thousands of assaults happening yearly across this country. Uh, 
And so to put something together and bring the stakeholders together in real time, we could do that. If everybody's vested in this, we could do it uh, within days. We could bring forth recommendations on best practices, and we could absolutely get this thing up and running in no time. One of the things that our panel brought up uh, were that in addition to whatever uh, additional cops we might get, TTC ambassadors, people paid to ride the TTC, but but to do so in a very visible way, uh, you know, wearing some kind of uniform. What do you think of that? Well, uh, you know, again, one of the things that we're concerned about is uh, our members being targeted because they wear a uniform. Yeah. I think that I, I think that you know if you have law enforcement or special constables that show a security and safety presence, I think we would best be served than putting rank and file members in a uniform to go out there and show visibility. Now, let's be clear: we're we are going to deter some individuals from committing those crimes, but we're not going to deter them all. Uh, and again, um, I'm I'm not sure if it came from you or from uh, another local, but in the meantime, I've heard recommendations to your workers saying, you know, until you get to your exact spot, cover up your uniform. And that was me. I said that yesterday in a, in a media release uh, in a press conference. And look, if if we're uneasy, let's cover up until we have to get behind the wheel of that bus. Um, you know, we cannot undress ourselves. I know we need to have a presence and we need to look professional as we operate those vehicles and be identified as transit professionals when we're out in the field. But to and from work and while we're waiting to start our shifts, I think we need to cover up for the time being until we can decide and figure out what some of those practices and protections are going to look like. Uh, I, I want to ask you about those uh, that swarming, very, very young kids. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm scratching my head. Can you think of anything that precipitated that? I mean, you know, this <laughs> show my ignorance, but was there something on social media or gaming? I mean, do you have any idea of why that happened? No, uh, we we don't have any information, um, you know, that would suggest why that happened. But, I mean, it was a swarming with with our with our staff. Um, you know, there was a swarming a number of months ago where um, they beat up on and killed a gentleman downtown. Absolutely horrible. One only has to think that there is some social media network that's bringing these people together to commit these these uh, these unthinkable acts. Right, and um, you know the the conservative leader yesterday was blaming the bail system, the justice system. Is that is is that a valid argument? Would you say? Look, you know, we've seen so many things go through the court systems and uh, first offenses, uh, you know, there's plea bargains and things get discharged very quickly. Um, You know, uh, a number of years ago under the criminal code, Bill S-221 was uh, amended to suggest that violence against transit operators, judges should consider the maximum penalties when imposing those things. The problem is, is that they very rarely make it up to a penalty phase because there's a plea bargain uh, or there is, uh, you know, there's some sort of peace bond on a first offense uh, and they discount these kinds of things. I think we need to look at the criminal code and make sure that an assault on a transit professional in this country resembles the same respect and the same dignity that we would for a first responder, like a police officer. We're serving the community. We move, 150 million rides a month in this country. Uh, It's a valuable asset, and we can ill afford to be irresponsible when we're dealing with those assailants. yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thought. I mean, um, uh, we are trying to figure out if the people who were already arrested, if they're out on bail or what. I have not succeeded in, in figuring that out. Are, are you keeping track of that? Um, quite frankly, no, I have not been keeping track of that. Um, you know, it's a very taxing process, especially when they become young offenders. We don't know who they are. Um, but, you know, I think what needs to happen is, moving forward is when these people go into the judicial system that, you know, there should be some outreach to the transit agencies and to the transit unions and say, 
maybe you need to come here and give your compelling story uh, or impact statements as to what this would look like. And we would want law enforcement and um, you know our legal teams to be able to reflect to Bill S-221 um, to really capture that maximum penalty should be considered in these violent attacks. And, and, and again, you know, by the time you get to, even if, if all of that happens, it's a long time before you get to a penalty. Absolutely. It takes years. Right. Um, so, uh, what I'm hearing from you is, is, uh, as well as our previous panel is that we need to toughen up on all of this. And this is, and this is why, you know, we suggest a task force, A, to implement our best practices and make sure that our workers are protected, but more importantly, our riders. You know, I've said openly that uh, public transit is a mobility right for millions of Canadians across this country to go to and from work, go to and from school, medical appointments, those living with disabilities. Uh, We cannot discount the importance of public transit and brush these things off as a one-off and let's move on and let's go back to, to work the next day. We need to tackle these things. Transit industry is suffering since the pandemic. Most agencies across this country have not regained pre-pandemic levels. But the uptick in violence across this nation is only going to drive people away from public transit uh, for years to come. And, uh, not just transit. I mean, one of the things that, again, we were just discussing uh, was it seems that uh, quite a number of public spaces are being taken over by people with issues, frankly. You know, I'm talking about encountering uh, menacing drug use and other things in Green Pea parking lots, um, which are located next to safe injection sites. The same thing, especially in the winter, the TTC people, people, uh, you know, with, uh, with, uh, harm intended are, are on the TTC either to stay out of the cold or, or whatever the reason is, is, you know, how do you see that? Well, um, you know, interestingly, you say that yesterday we were doing, uh, I was doing some media interviews at one of the subway stations on the TTC. And, uh, as we walked in, it, it was apparent that there was at least two individuals that were in crisis and were dealing with some mental health issues. Um, and, and, you know, they're housing themselves in our subway stations and in our transit vehicles. Um, I did see the police respond to one of the incidences, but just kind of move the individual along um, and let them, let them reintegrate into the system. I think that's irresponsible. Um, I'm not saying that we need to incarcerate these people or commit them. We need to help them is what we need to do. Okay. Uh, John Danina, what would you like to leave us with? Look, uh, what I'd like to leave you with is that there's an urgent call. We can no longer sit on our hands. We need the stakeholders to come to the table and let's protect our workers. Let's protect the, the writing public and we can get this done very, very quickly. Okay. John Danino, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Okay, uh, I am going to take a couple of calls before we move on to our next seg- segment. Uh, Kate in Toronto. Hello, Kate. Hi there. Thank you. I think I want to comment about the youth swarming incidents. There are no consequences for people under eighteen. Their names are shielded from the public. You don't know who they are, and. There's just no consequences, and I think something has to be done to make it public so that if you engage in that type of behavior, no matter what your age, it's going to be out there in the media. It impacts your life in the future. Well, tough. You made the choice to behave like that. Take your consequences. That's my comment. Okay, Kate. Thank you for that. Uh, Let's hear from Cabria. Are you there? Hello. Hello. Hi. In Markham. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. I'm actually an international political science student and a certified victimologist. And a lot of what I've been hearing on the, um, you know, calls today, although with some valid points, uh, comes from a point of view of folks who unfortunately don't live the lives of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in Toronto. A reality, unfortunately, is with the evictions at Trinity Bellwood Park from last summer, 
we saw that the Toronto Police used $2 million of funds that could have been used for housing. And just this year alone, unfortunately, like the uh, mayor announced that there was going to be suggested budget cuts to housing and mental health care services, many of which everyone keeps talking about they would like individuals to be referred to. But with budget cuts means that there's now limited space. And I'm also not sure if everyone is familiar, but with the LRT's new line, there's the gentrification fears that are occurring in the eviction processes that are happening in the Jane and Finch area. Okay, Cabria, I got your drift. Thank you. Okay, well, uh, that is the pushback that we have been referring to. Um, uh, Yeah. Uh, And thank you for your point of view, Cabria. And do I have time for one more? No, I am looking at the clock. It's time for another break. And when we come back, uh, we are totally switching gears. We're talking about the latest interest rate hike and what's going on in the real estate market. And there are a lot of people in our older audience uh, who have kids hoping that some of this shift will help them get into the market, will it, when we come back? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, the Bank of Canada raised its benchmark interest rate for the eighth time in less than a year to four and a half percent. Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem promised this will be the last hike if it works to bring down inflation, which still has a long way to go to drop to be inside the target rate of 3%. The rapid increase has hit the real estate market, but the question for many of our listeners is, will this be enough for their children? to become homeowners, preferably in a location not too far from their parents. And by the numbers, sales were down 38% annually in 2022. They fell 48% in December. And the average selling price for properties fell 9.2%, but still over a million bucks. Uh, so the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And now let's go to Moshe Lander, Senior Lecturer in Economics at Concordia University in Montreal, and Steve Jelinek, a Toronto real estate agent with Chestnut Park Real Estate. Hey guys, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, let us begin with Steve. So are these changes in the market along with the increases in real estate? Are they enough for, you know, millennials and younger people who want to get into the market? Are they going to be able to get in with this? Well, we're actually at the worst point that we can possibly be at uh, when it comes to the environment of interest rate and prices uh, and inflation. So interest rates have gone up to hopefully cool inflation, but inflation is still in our housing market. So right now we're at a point where we have high interest rates, high prices, high rents, and uh, the, the, the something has to give. And prices would probably be the thing that should give, but most of Ontario finds itself in an inventory crunch still. So we're, we're in a bit of a wait-and-see environment, um, and the only hope that we can have is that more inventory comes to the market to help people get in. Well, but prices have given. We're just looking at these numbers, and if prices have fallen an average of 10% or nearly 10%, that's quite a lot. But, I mean, we're talking about a market that also went up 20% in a year. Um, so when you look on a relative basis, the pre-pandemic um, pricing in a normal interest rate environment, um, we're, we're still ahead of that, and our interest rates are significantly more than that now. So the pressure's on for people looking to get into the market, but there's always um, creative ways to come up with, um, you know, maybe a basement uh, rental in your house, rent out a bedroom um, within the house to help alleviate the pressure. But it just takes some creativity and positioning in the current market. Moshe Lander, uh, first of all, uh, is that the situation in Montreal or is it a little easier? I think it's the situation in most Canadian markets. There's this uh, limitation, mostly from local city councils, in creating the new inventory that we were just discussing. And so, you know, when somebody owns a home, it's usually one of their two biggest assets. The only other bigger asset could be, say, their pension value. 
And so once you have that equity in your home, you're going to lobby your local city councilor to make sure that you don't bring new inventory on because that would push down housing prices and that would eliminate some of the value that you built up over possibly years and years of paying down your mortgage. And so, you know, there's this tension then where young people do want to get onto the, the housing ladder, uh, but the older people in the market don't want it. Uh, and where they might want it for their own kids and their grandkids, uh, they don't want it for anybody else's kids and grandkids. And so there's this tension then uh, that, that makes it difficult. So it, it's here in Montreal, it's in Calgary, Edmonton, Halifax, Ottawa, Quebec City, you name it, 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 it's out there. Do you agree with Steve that we're kind of at the worst point where uh, something else has got to give? And do you think that something else being prices will give? So I don't think that it's going to be prices that give. I, I just don't think that we could contemplate seeing a, a drop of 20, 30, 40% in housing prices, right? Uh, this would put such strain on households. Uh, it would push them to bankruptcy. It would push them into delinquency. It would force banks to have to start taking over houses. And, and I don't think that there's any appetite for that among anybody. So it, you're probably stuck with this period where at best, housing prices are going to remain flat for an extended period. They might decline slightly. You're saying, you know, 9%, but like Steve said, that's already from a 20% increase that preceded yeah. that and a long amount of increase before that. So yeah. I don't think that it's going to be prices that come down. I think what's more likely is that it's going to be rents continue to rise to justify those high housing prices. Okay, yeah, that's not going to be helping anybody because we've already started to see, uh, you know, advice for some people saying, hey, maybe renting is not such a bad option and and maybe you shouldn't even aspire to be a homeowner. Yeah, and I I think that that's the great myth that, I mean, I, I certainly heard from my parents growing up that the best thing you can ever do is buy a house. So there's almost like a stigma attached that somehow being a renter in Canada makes you a second-class citizen, right? European countries have a much different view about home ownership and renting. And so because there is this stigma, the idea of saying to somebody, don't worry about buying a home, maybe it's just not for you, uh, this creates in this impression that somehow you're relegated to second status by being a renter. And part of it's there in the way that the housing market works. We've seen government after government raise the minimum down payment necessary uh, in order to acquire a home. And that, of course, can be a problem, too, for young people, that even if they could pay the mortgage and somehow come up with the cash on a month-to-month basis, they don't have that vast lump sum that they need, say, in their 30s, to be able to get that house in the first place. Well, yeah, I have a lot of sympathy with that, but I also remember the last housing crash in the 90s when people lost their homes, when suddenly their homes were worth less than their mortgages. Um, yeah, Steve, that, that's the tension. Uh, Steve, in terms of uh, the attitudes to renting, what are you finding out there? Well, I'm finding a lot of people are in kind of a wait and see um, uh, mood, and uh, and to be honest, while the market's figuring itself out and the Bank of Canada's figuring out its uh, overnight rate, um, it's not a bad spot to be to kind of wait and see what happens, and that's why transactions are down so much. Um, so people are, are warming up to it more, but that's also the reason why now our rental market is up 20% year over year. I mean, the rental numbers just came out and the average price of an apartment in Canada is $2,000 a month. That's crazy. And what about here um, in Toronto? It must be higher. One bedroom is about 2400 Wow. Uh, two bedrooms closer to $3,200. Um, so these are really, really big numbers that put pressure on um, families and households and professionals working or just everyday people. Um, so w- we're in this kind of um, back and forth market between the resale market where people want to get in, it gets too hot, people go to rent, rental market gets too hot, people start to look to buy again. And the Bank of Canada plays a big role in this with the overnight rate. But I find that um, the Bank of Canada, in my personal opinion, might have lost some credibility from their statements that rates would stay low for a, a very long time yeah, in no 2020. Um, so now that they say they're going to pause, I mean, I, I, I still think that it might be a good idea to, to kind of watch and, and see if they're true to that. Um, but the reality of it is, is that we have to get inflation down. And again, I, I just want to reiterate that I personally believe this is the worst part. So anybody who's looking um, at, 
you know, their monthly costs, whether it's rental or the interest rate that's gone up. Just try to be creative. Try to come up with some um, different avenues to take some pain away. Chat with your bank. See if there's a way to decrease your principal payment. Um, rent out a bedroom in your house. Whatever you got to do, just get through the next six months, and I think things are going to start to normalize a little more. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a very quick call from Pat. A very quick call, well, maybe, Pat. Um, I'm old enough to have had a mortgage in 1981 where I paid 21.5%. And what did you pay for your property? Uh, well, I was right in the middle of a renovation at that point. We had originally paid 140000 for the property. Okay, well, that's a, that's no, but, a but big... But the point is, 21.5% yeah. when you're right in the middle of a renovation, interest rates were going up at 2% per week. Well, that's right. And that's that's difficult, but probably not quite as difficult as trying to amass, what, uh, $250,000 when, when you're a young person, even if you do well. So here's a quick answer. My younger son and his partner looked at the situation, and this is 10 or 15 years ago, and said if they stayed in Toronto, they would be wage slaves to a mortgage, and it would take them an hour to drive anywhere. They moved to Kingston, and they've almost paid off their mortgage. So, I mean, there are answers. (laughs) Okay, Pat. Uh, Okay. Uh, We have a very little time left. Uh, So let us begin with Steve. What would you like to leave us with? Well, I think think that there's a lot of negativity in in all markets, whether it's rental, resale, the pre-construction market's kind of its own. Um, uh, economic environment as well. They're under a lot of new taxes and pressures with interest rates and high purchase prices. I would just implore people to really, you know, have the conversations, sit down, think things through, look where you can take some pressure off. Um, I think come 2024, it's going to be a much better environment for everybody. And, uh, and I would think that, you know, rental markets go up and down, resale market goes up and down. And as long as people are making well-informed, logistic decisions, they're going to be in a good spot. Okay, Moshe Lander, 20 seconds. Last 20 seconds to you, please. Mobility and flexibility is key. And so, like your caller just said, if you have the ability to move, that gives you options. And options is always a good thing. And so, uh, you know, figure out what what is your mobility and what is your flexibility, and that probably helps as well. Okay. Thank you so much, Moshe Lander and Steve Jelinek. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you could not get through, clearly uh, there is a lot on the minds of our audience and uh, we can talk about it all then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.